continue. We are on page 136, and we're continuing to have this conversation about what the, what the afterlife looks like from the Jewish perspective. So we're on uh, number four. I'm trying to get that light behind me is really disturbing me. I don't know if it's disturbing you, but it's disturbing me. Um, I feel like I'm already in the afterlife. Don't really like that feeling. So. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I got horns now. I don't know. I got the car and R. My face is shiny. Maybe I'm Osha. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's angle this way. It should be a little better. My brother's still here and he's downstairs with his five kids. And my other five kids are downstairs too. So I figured there's just no way there'll be any silence downstairs. So we came upstairs. Okay. So. Hi um yeah i guess i'm hiding <laughs> yeah, yeah we got you rabbi <laughs> okay thank you okay so we're on page 136 we're up to chapter uh, number four regarding those savory afterlife rewards of the other religions which our torah does not examine explicitly right as we've mentioned in the past and as dave was very troubled why is it that the torah doesn't seem to mention anything explicitly about the um about the afterlife our rabbis have already discussed the afterlife of the Garden of Eden and Gehenna and have graphically detailed their entire length and breadth. And so the, the Gemara tells us in great detail about, you know, if you go to a certain place in Israel and there's like smoke coming up from the ground in between these two palm trees, and that's one of the entrances to hell. And there's lots of places that are entrances to hell. And if you do the wrong thing, you will end up in hell. When I was a kid, they used to have this um, highlights, had this... Uh, this graphic called uh, Gallant and Goofus. And Gallant would always do the right thing and Goofus would always do the wrong thing. And Goofus was supposed to be the one that's going to end up in hell. That's always what you're supposed to be thinking. They have told us of the pleasures and tortures of the afterlife in greater detail than the more recent religion. The reason I have not discussed the afterlife with you until now is because up to now, I've only been speaking of that which is written explicitly in the text of the prophets. And when we say prophets here, we are also encompassing, we're also including the word of Moshe Rabbein, because Moshe Rabbeinu is obviously the first and greatest, not first, but the greatest of all prophets. The rewards of the world to come are not as clearly detailed in scripture as they are in the words of the sages. The words of the sages are nevertheless true as they are rooted in the Torah, This is part of what the oral Torah consists of. And for those of you who heard Rabbi Felsen last night, you know, you know now very clearly what the connection is between the written and oral Torah. Scripture does say, that the earthy elements within man's body shall return to the earth and that his spirit will return to God who gave it to him. Scripture also discusses the resurrection of the dead, which will take place in the future. It will be preceded by the heraldine prophet, Elijah, Eliyahu, who had already acted as God's messenger in the past before God took him away, just as he took away others who have never tasted death. So our tradition teaches that there are certain individuals who due to their unique status and having achieved their complete and total potential in this world, they actually were taken into the world to come while still alive. What exactly this means, I, I, don't, I don't know, so I can't really tell you, but it, it indicates that their passage into the world to come is not the same as the rest of people's passage would be. Furthermore, the Torah contains the prayer of a prophet who prophesied with the spirit of God and prayed for himself that he should die the death of the upright and that his ending should be like the ending that is marked out for the Jewish people. So what we're trying to say is, and this is um, the prophet Bilam, right? The, the prophet who was a prophet for the non-Jews, who says that he wishes that his ending should be similar to the ending of the Jewish people, which indicates 
that this was a, a status that was known to the prophets and not just the Jewish prophets, but even to the prophets of the non-Jewish nations. Also, one of our kings, Saul, once queried in a science, a dead prophet, Shmuel, Samuel, and the prophet prophesied all that would happen to Saul in the future, just as he had prophesied for him when he was alive. In other words, so if we read in, in the prophet Samuel, some of us have, have read this together, actually. So when, when we read the story about the necromancer and how she brings up the spirit of Samuel, so Samuel tells Saul exactly what's going to happen to him in the future. What he's trying to prove from here is that clearly there is an afterlife because she brought a soul of a prophet who was able to say what's going to happen in the future, the same way he was able to access prophetic visions of the future when he was in this world, so to his soul was able to access prophetic visions of the future and when he was in the world to come, because the soul is still alive. Although the king's practice of summoning the dead is forbidden by the Torah, we still see that there was a widespread belief during the times of the prophets that the soul lives on after the body dies. And this is why people used to practice necromancy. So what he's trying to prove is actually something interesting. He's trying to prove that the sages of the Talmud, who are telling us in great detail about what the world to come looks like, both in terms of the pleasures and in terms of the punishments, right, and the travails, right? You have to understand that this is well-rooted in the tradition. And I'll prove it to you because the prophet Samuel, which is written far earlier, is describing a reality that people were actually engaged in. And in truth, I would even say, I'm not sure why he's not saying this himself, so I'm a little bit puzzled. But the Torah itself, when it forbids us to consult with necromancers and those who are able to speak with the dead, by definition, the Torah itself seemingly is showing us that indeed it is possible to consult or to communicate with those who are no longer alive, indicating that there is some life after death that is potentially possible. The opening of our morning prayers, which is well known even by women and children, and certainly by the rabbis, goes like this. My God, the soul which you have given to me is pure. You created it, you formed it, you breathed it into me. You preserve it within me, you will eventually take it away from me, and will return it to me in the future. As long as the soul is within me, I give thanks to you, Lord, my God, and God of my fathers, ruler of all things and master of all souls. Blessed are you, God, who returns souls to dead corpses. So these are literally right at the beginning of the morning prayers. One of the first things that we say is a heartfelt thank you to God for returning our soul to us in the morning as we awaken. Right? Well, as we know, the tradition teaches that when we sleep and we lose a level of ability to choose and ability to have free will, when we sleep, we don't have the ability to choose. We are missing a component of our soul. And the tradition teaches that that component of our soul is actually traveling back to the creator and hyperspeed. I'm kidding. There is no distance intervening, right? So traveling back to the creator. And then when we wake up in the morning, Hashem is placing our soul back in us. And we express our gratitude and our recognition of this immediately as we start to pray in the morning. The Garden of Eden, which is cited often by other religions, was taken from our Torah. Right? The entire story of the Garden of Eden is right at the beginning of the Torah. It refers to a certain spiritual plane that was prepared for man. Had man not sinned, Adam and Eve's sin of eating from the tree, he would still be there today. Similarly, Gehanim is a known place outside of Jerusalem, which is a valley, gay in Hebrew, where fire is always burning. People used to burn impure bones 
and carcasses there, along with other things affected by spiritual impurity. The word Gehenim, which comes from Gay and Hinaim, is really a contraction of two different words. Gay, as I said, and Hinnom. Gay means valley, and Hinnom means, uh, that was the name of the place. So Gehenim is actually the place called the Valley of Hinnom. The Kuzari said, if this is so, then there really is nothing additional to your Torah and the other religions which define an afterlife, except for some details regarding the Garden of Eden and Gehenim and their characteristics, and the fact that the other religions were redundant and verbose in their descriptions. The rabbi said, even the details are nothing new, for the rabbis expounded greatly on this subject. There is no new detail that you will not find in the words of the sages if you search for it. Okay? This is the, this concludes the end of the first essay. And at this point, the Khazarian king has been convinced that Judaism is the true religion and that whatever is worthy and holy and true about the other religions that came after that is only there as been seeded by the true religion. And I mentioned to you in the past, but I think it bears repeating, it used to trouble me when I was a child, or not child, but younger, that people would talk about how Western civilization is sort of a combination of two different ideas, right? The Roman Greek tradition of free speech and democracy and the Judeo-Christian culture, Judeo-Christian ethics, we should say, right? And it bothered me, why are they describing it as Judeo-Christian? It's not really Judeo-Christian, it's really Judaism, it's not Christianity. There's nothing about Christianity that actually is ethical and moral and pure that doesn't come directly from the Torah. It doesn't come directly from what the sages have already taught, what both the written and the oral tradition. And my father told me that really you have to understand, maybe this is not what the nations of the world mean when they say it, but this is how we ought to understand it. We are the pollen. We are the pollen that seeds the entire world with the truths of the Torah. But sometimes you need the bee to bring the pollen from one tree to the other. So what the Christians have done is they have taken our truth, they've taken the reality of the Torah and they have managed to seed it through a vast, vast majority of the world at this point, or not majority, but a plurality at least, that now believes in many of the truths of the Torah because the Christians and Islam have managed to spread the truths of the Torah. So it's Judeo-Christian in the sense that we have provided the source, they have spread it. So, okay, that is the end of essay number one. And God willing, tomorrow night at seven o'clock, we will continue with essay number two, as there will be a, a, a transition into a different sort of uh, discussion. Okay, take care, everyone. Be well. Good night. Great Thank to you. See you all. Good night.